from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 18 through 30. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So I'm Kara. I'm one of the pastors here at LMCC. I'm glad to see all your friendly faces here this morning. We are, as Ryan mentioned, we're in the week seven, the final installment of our series on negative emotions. And so far in the series, we've looked at anger and frustration. We've looked at anxiety and worry guilt and shame, depression and despair, inferiority and inadequacy and apathy and indifference. So just to make sure that you stay on an up note, we're going we're gonna to continue in the series this morning with cynicism. So to sort of combat the downer nature of this series, God gave us a, a beautiful day and he gave us the 12th floor space so that we could have maximum uh, light this morning. Now, some of you more observant and analytical types out there might be saying, hold on, cynicism, this this doesn't match with the rest of the series. It's not really an emotion. I I consider that to be more of a, um, a personality trait or an attitude. And to you, I would say, that's an awfully cynical thing to say don't you think? Um, but the truth is, really, I, I uh, drew the short straw for the last week in the series, and everybody else grabbed up the good negative emotions. So I had to stretch a little, so work with me here. Um, we had a pastor's meeting where we were throwing out, we were brainstorming and throwing out topics that we might, uh, that we might cover in this series, and so people were saying, you know, regret, Disappointment, and somebody said cynicism, and everyone stopped and looked at me. And so, I mean, my reaction was cynicism, that'll never work. And I knew in that moment it probably was the right topic for this last week, and that I probably was the right person to, to deliver it. So here we are. Um, I've connected deeply with the other sermons in this series. Um, Probably the highlight moment for me was last week when Jacob admitted that he cries. 
because for a really long time I've been in this uncomfortable spot of being the only one of the pastors that ever cries in front of people. And I really hate being in that spot. I think Dane will, Dane's laughing in the back because I have actually asked Dane, the prayer master of LMCC, to pray that I don't cry during a sermon. I've asked him to do that. And he laughs at me and prays whatever is actually on his heart and ignores that request. So I, I appreciate Jacob's vulnerability in sharing that with us, and I really love being in good company. So thank you for that, Jacob, and fingers crossed for today. But as far as the rest of the emotions go that we've covered in the series, I, I struggle daily with anger and anxiety I've certainly experienced periods of my life um, of depression, and also uh, a lot of times I experience inferiority and inadequacy. This very moment would be a great example of that as I stand and try to deliver words from God. That's a daunting task. It's a daunting concept, and I never feel adequate to do that. Nothing, though, has me in its grasp quite like cynicism. I feel most days cynicism truly is my closest friend, and I wouldn't dare walk out of my apartment without its protective shell covering me. I've spent hours poring over my notes for this morning, and I've had others do the same, and still I don't have confidence that I could stand here for the next 20, 25 minutes and not say anything cynical. That's how much cynicism has me in its grasp. So what we're going to look at today in the effort to release that grasp in my own life and hopefully yours, are we're going to tackle it like this. We're going to look at the arguments for cynicism and against cynicism because they both exist. And we're going to look at cynicism in the church That's the elephant in the room. Uh, We're also going to look at the antidotes for cynicism, the the true antidote and the false antidotes. But before we do that, would you please uh, prepare with me by joining me in prayer? Dear God, it is exhausting many days to live life, especially in this city, as an emotional human being. We praise you, though, that you're the God of healing and that we can come before you with all our imperfections, with all of these emotions and all our brokenness, and you see what's truly in our heart and love us anyway. We pray that you would embolden us this morning to open up, to let there be a crack in our armor, in our shield so that we can hear from you, God, this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. So there are strong opinions and many varying views about cynicism that are out there. So let me start this morning, since I am a cynic. Hello, my name is Kara Marriott, I'm a cynic. Let's start by looking at the views in defense of cynicism. Cynicism as we like to think of it as uh, realism. 
So we tend to wear cynicism like a badge of honor, like the mark of a sharp-witted, savvy intellectual. I've seen a t-shirt out there that says, I'm not cynical, I'm just experienced. Maybe I saw that t-shirt in my own closet. I'm not sure where I saw it. The famous playwright George Bernard Shaw said this, the power of accurate observation is commonly called cynicism by those who have not got it. Here's another quote from my favorite philosopher, Dan Marriott. The opposite of cynicism is lying. And here's another. <laughs> he, he believes that. I think, there are, I think there ought to be a club in which preachers and journalists could come together and have the sentimentalism of the one matched with the cynicism of the other. That ought to bring them pretty close to the truth. That's Reinhold Niebuhr, theologian. Now, let's look at the other side of cynicism and expose it. Cynicism exposed as fear and foolishness. Here are some opinions on on that side of things. Russell Lines, who was the former managing editor of Harper's Magazine, said this, Cynicism is the intellectual cripple's substitute for intelligence. I like this one. Cynicism is kind of like folding your arms and stepping back and commenting on things like the old guys in the Muppets, just throwing out comments all the time, whereas there are other people on the ground really trying to affect things and improve their lives and the lives of other people. That's Josh Radner. For those of you who are over 22, he's an actor. Um, I think we too often make choices based on the safety of cynicism, and what we're led to is a life not fully lived. Cynicism is fear, and it's worse than fear. It's active disengagement. That's Ken Burns, a documentary filmmaker. So while we proudly don our cloaks of cynicism, we discover the emperor has no clothes. It's really the mark of a powerless, naive coward, not that of a savvy, experienced intellectual. The passage that Randy read earlier from 1 Corinthians says, The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So we can't wear the I'm not cynical, the cynic's t-shirt, without exposing ourselves to be the fools that we really are. So what is cynicism actually? Where's the middle ground here? And where does it come from? Cynicism is really just the, the belief that every situation will yield the worst possible outcome. Or probably more accurately, it's the the belief that the best possible outcome will never happen. And it arises from disappointment. Sometimes disappointment happens abruptly, like we're frolicking through a field of hopes and dreams when suddenly we step on a landmine. But worse, probably, are the disillusionments that are created subtly over time. When we, in just the course of living normal life, digest the occasional disturbing reality. People we trust are dishonest. Money we need, money we count on dries up. Opportunities are lost. Elections are rigged. News is biased. The, the list goes on and on. And then one day, we hear ourselves speak and wonder where along the way we became so disillusioned. 
A 2005 study done by Yale showed that cynicism develops as early as seven years of age. Shattered illusions leave our souls brutally injured. And if we resist spiritual rehabilitation and restoration, our wounds become infected, so to speak. And brokenness then becomes bitterness. God promises he can fix the broken. Psalm 47.3 tells us he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wound. But the path to bitterness is dark and it's dangerous. And unfortunately, it's very crowded. So who are the cynics in the world? Don't worry, I'm not asking you to stand and identify yourselves, and I, I won't name any names. But for starters, pretty much every New Yorker, right? Or is, is that a cynical thing to say? It's pretty much every New Yorker. It, we get awfully banged up in this town of competitive ambition, where just walking down the street requires a certain amount of, of thick skin and risk-taking. It's not hard to see how disappointments and experience of just everyday life here, parking tickets, crowded trains, traffic jams, long lines, cutthroat work environments, it's not hard to see how that can lead to cynicism. But cynics aren't just New Yorkers or the philosophers and the academics that are mentioned in the passage that Randy read, or atheists or scholars. They're also pastors. They're seminary students. They're godly homemakers and Bible-studying business leaders. Cynicism is almost becoming a hip new way to be spiritual. So to understand who is on this crowded path of cynicism and bitterness, it's important that we look at cynicism in the church. What do cynical Christians look like? Again, don't stand up. They, they avoid displaying too much emotion during a worship service. They avoid sharing too much at a community group. They might say things like, I'm, I'm really more of a spiritual person than a religious one. You might find cynics situated on the fringes of Christian fellowship, the perfect vantage point for criticizing the mistakes of the church while still maintaining some allegiance to Jesus. Second Timothy 3, 2, and 5 warns us that people will be lovers of themselves, having a form of godliness but denying its power. There are myriad reasons we feel cynical toward the church. The margin for error when you put these many imperfect people in a room is very high. We constantly disappoint, fail, and injure one another. We might have cynical attitudes towards the church because of its theological shallowness, or we might have cynical attitudes because of the church's theological arrogance. The church's cultural irrelevance and idealism can be disturbing, and it's also embarrassing. Matthew 21.12 tells us about Jesus going into the temple marketplace and basically going nuts and flipping tables and throwing chairs. I am 100% certain that at least one of those vendors in that marketplace was selling dish towels that say something like, 
God will never give you more than you can handle embroidered on them. Or maybe some nice watercolor prints of the the poem footprints. That stuff makes me crazy. It makes me want to flip tables. Personally, I've always wanted a set of dish towels with 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9 embroidered on them. It says this, we're so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired to life itself. But apparently, those don't sell very well. <laughs> can't, can't bring those out at the ladies' luncheon at First Baptist Church. <laughs> doesn't go over. So just like there are varying opinions on the efficacy of cynicism, there are opposing views on its antidote. The false antidote to cynicism. I want to look at the false antidote first. And that's idealism. Idealism is not the antidote to cynicism. It's, it's actually the other side of the coin. Just like a couple of weeks ago, Ryan talked about inferiority and superiority being two sides of the same coin. Same with cynicism and idealism. They're, they're actually equally detrimental, and they feed off of each other. We used to have a babysitter, and our current babysitter's in the room, and she'll know who I'm talking about. We used to have a much-beloved babysitter who lived in this world of rainbows and unicorns, and she skipped everywhere she went and always had a smile and chirped all the time about her wonderful family and her God-given friends, and I just want to smack her. (laughs) Every day I wanted to smack her, and Dan and I found ourselves saying things to each other like, this, this isn't sustainable. It's not sustainable. Something really bad needs to happen to her soon. <laughs> now, while she can handle it, because if it's too late in life, it's just going to take her down. But fighting the sickness of idealism with the sickness of, of sorry, fighting the sickness of idealism with the sickness of cynicism just creates a super virus. When we're faced with real distress and pain. We don't want niceties and poems. We want real answers. We want to know why the heck this is happening. We want to know what kind of God would let it happen to begin with. And we want to know where the hell is he when we need him to fix it. Idealism and cynicism are both rooted in an attachment to our own made-up version of how things should be. In his book, Faith Without Illusions, Andrew Byers wrote this. Due to a variety of cultural and socioeconomic factors, many Western Christians have anchored their hopes in optimistic ideals that could only come from a God who wields a magic wand and brings a kingdom that strangely resembles Disney World. The Christian idealism embraces the legitimate biblical realities of triumph, strength, deliverance, joy, and happiness without also embracing the equally biblical and often more immediate realities of suffering, pain, struggle, and weakness. By embracing such a triumphalistic understanding of Christianity, we inadvertently populate our pews with jaded cynics because idealism just does not hold water in this world. In one of the scriptures, sorry, 
we didn't read it. There's a scripture in the Old Testament, which I will read for you momentarily, where the Old Testament Jews are struggling with cynicism in reaction to the idealism of their own false made-up vision. This is how God told Ezekiel to deal with it. This is from Ezekiel 12, 21 and 25, and it is printed on your program if you want to read along. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, what is this proverb you have in the land of Israel? The days go by and every vision comes to nothing. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to put an end to this proverb and they will no longer quote it in Israel. Say to them, the days are near when every vision will be fulfilled for there will be no more false visions or flattering divinations among the people of Israel. But I, the Lord, will speak what I will And it shall be fulfilled without delay. For in your days, you rebellious people, I will fulfill whatever I say, declares the Sovereign Lord. So the people were struggling with visions and proverbs that weren't being fulfilled. And God said, soon, there won't be any visions or proverbs. I'm going to shatter them myself. And all that's going to be left is reality. And the reason your visions, your divinations, your hopes, your dreams, your plans get shattered is because they're not mine. You live in a screwed up world and you're listening to people that I didn't send, the enemy, yourself, and you're leaving me completely out of the picture because you don't truly believe that I'll do what I've said I'll do. It's taking too long, it requires too much power, and it doesn't conform to your limited schemes. But let there be no mistake. Every single thing that I've said, ever promised, is happening. I'm going to make it happen fully and completely, and you cynics will be there to see it all go down. We lose out when we attach ourselves to our own vision and not to God's. So we need need the true antidote to, to cynicism, and that is hope. Disillusionment, disappointment, and realism can be a gift. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and with ourselves. Only that fellowship with which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and a community, the better for both. So disillusionment and disappointment can be a gift. The lives of people like Job and Paul and even Jesus Show us that pain and disappointment aren't meaningless. If we choose to take the shattered pieces of long-held ideas and expectations and rebuild something solid and founded in the truth, we are all the better for it. It's through that process that we can learn what it means to own our faith. So they can be a gift only if they result in hope. If we never face challenges or suffering, we can't understand hope. Romans 5, 3 and 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, 
and endurance produces character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The opposite of cynicism isn't optimism. The opposite of cynicism is hope. Cornel West said, I cannot be an optimist, but I am a prisoner of hope. Hope is gritty. Hope is defiant. Hope isn't Pollyanna cheerfulness. Hope isn't holding on. Uh, sorry, hope is holding on by the skin of your teeth. It's believing despite the evidence. 19th century philosopher William James described hope as the courage to act when doubt is warranted. Hope is the belief that God may do something new and unexpected. Hope isn't trusting that God will do a certain thing or ensure a certain outcome within a certain time frame that, that we've divined. Hope is trusting in God that he is good. And regardless whether the present circumstances seem completely to the contrary, we know that he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, like we're told in Romans 8.28. God loves, protects, and keeps his promises to those who don't give up hope. Hope is rooted in the realization that our own vision is limited. God is bigger, and the picture is bigger than we can see. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. That's Isaiah 43, 19. History isn't yet complete. The story is still being told. If we're willing to claim this promise from Isaiah, then we can face the grim reality of our lives and answer it with the joyful reality that God is making all things new. A daring hopefulness can infuse our daily experience even when it's weathered and aged by things past. When cynics slam the door shut on their disappointment, they close themselves off to the possibilities, the inevitabilities. God promises again in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. Resist the temptation. Resist the temptation to boil every situation down to just the outcomes that your limited and narrow human mind is capable of conceiving. We have no idea what God is doing, what he has planned, or what he's capable of. Remember the reading from Corinthians, from 1 Corinthians, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. That means on our best day, our brightest and best can't even touch the foolishness of God. We're not capable of conceiving his plans. And he has huge plans. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. That's Revelation 3. My purpose is to give life in all its fullness. That's John 10.10. 10. But you'll never experience the plans if you shut him down at every turn. Give him space in your heart and in your life. Take a risk. Put yourself out there. Dare to turn your back on the painful experiences 
that have made you cynical and turn instead toward the cross because the message of the cross, and again, back to 1 Corinthians, to us who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. Hope requires tremendous patience. This is the downside of hope. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise at some count, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As cynics, we say, well, clearly, if God was going to do anything about this, if there even is a God, he would have acted before now. He would have healed this person or prevented this accident or found me a job or found me a spouse or an apartment. He would have done that by now. But instead of turning his back on, his, on our wretched souls, when we run out of patience, his is just beginning. Instead of turning his back on us, he smiles the patient smile of a father and gives us a chance to work through it and to find our way to him. So how can we hope with enthusiasm and certainty? We can hope because of the demonstration, the ultimate demonstration of God doing something new and unexpected. And that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection announces the end of cynicism because it heralds the end of everything that makes us cynical. It's the end of anger and frustration. It's the end of guilt and shame, of anxiety and worry, of depression and despair, of inferiority and adequacy, and of apathy and indifference. It's the end of all of it. When the Son of God climbed out of a grave and left behind the cloths, that covered the wounds of sin and death, that covered the wounds of thorns and thistles and disorder and disillusionment, then cynicism became obsolete. Christ has become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. That's again from our reading in 1 Corinthians. Leon Trotsky the Marxist revolutionary, said life is not an easy matter. You cannot live through it without falling into frustration and cynicism unless you have before you a great idea which raises you above personal misery, above weakness, above all kinds of perfidy and baseness. For Trotsky, that great idea was that the proletariat could unite and create a new society. That great idea turned out to be nothing but idealism. But for Christians, that great idea can raise us above the cynicism. The great idea is that God is doing something new. He's done something new and unexpected, and he's doing more new things in our own lives. So finally, what can we do? when we've been cynical, when we've been wrong, when we were closed off to the new things that God was doing. Paul showed us that. He showed us in the New Testament that what you do is you repent and you switch sides. Saul of Tarsus was traveling on the road to Damascus 
when he discovered through a dramatic encounter that he had actually been assaulting and persecuting the God that he was so devoutly serving, he thought. The days of blindness and fasting that ensued were surely filled with unspeakable regret, guilt, shame, and anger, but they ended in a ministry that the fruits of which we still reap today. Saul let his shattered soul be healed and availed himself to God and God's plan for his life. I submit that there is a place for cynics to be useful and that ultimately redemption is available to them, to us. Those prone to cynicism possess insights that we can actually use. Their voices will only be helpful, though, if, like Paul, their wounds can be restored to health. The target of cynicism that looms the largest in our lives is probably cynicism about our own growth, about our own ability to change. We remain closed off to the idea that God could do something new in our own lives. God can do something new. He can do something new in your marriage, in your job, in your spiritual life. But change begins with the decision to stop disbelieving because your idealistic visions of yesterday have died. Ask for a fresh revelation and dare to expect God to do what he says he'll do. Hope is the only way out of cynicism. Some of you out there already consider yourselves to be believers. And this morning, I would like to challenge each of you to look inside and survey your own responses to each of these sermons in this Negative Emotions series. You might have thought or be thinking now, yes, those were terrific sermons. I connected deeply. But I know how this always goes. A few weeks will pass, I've left here inspired, but when I go back to my daily routine, my daily life, nothing's actually going to change. You are on a slippery slope into cynicism, and I dare you to stop your descent today, to grab onto the outreached hands of Christ and let him pull you out. Go back, listen to the sermons again, maybe just pick one that you really connected to, and ask ask God to make a change in your heart, and then expect him to deliver. If believing is not a step that you've taken yet, and you're ready to begin this journey towards transformation through God's mercy, you can pray this prayer, either there in your seat, or if you want someone to pray with you, there will be members of our prayer team that are waiting for you Uh, to receive you in the back and pray with you. But you can pray with this prayer with me now. God, I'm out of answers, and I know in my heart that you have them. I believe that you're in control, God, and when you raised your son Jesus from the dead, that you did that for me. I want to be freed from cynicism and disappointment by accepting this undeserved gift of salvation through the sacrifice of your son. So we're going to head now into a time of communion. 
each week as believers, we remember this ultimate demonstration of God's plans for the new and unexpected in our lives through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. There will be two stations for communion, one on the right, one on the left. You can go to either one, or you, you can just remain in your seat for a time of reflection. <laughs>